Um, we are starting a brand new series today called Exiles, where we're looking at the book of Daniel. For a very brief period of Hebrew history, uh, a group of Jewish people lived as an immigrant minority in a foreign country in Babylon. And while they were there, um, certainly they felt uh, alone and isolated and abandoned. And yet, God is going to use this group of Hebrew young people to impact Babylon more so than Babylon is going to impact uh, them. And here's the way I think this series is going to be helpful uh, to us. You know, we have moments in our lives where we face our own Babylon, right? We face our own exile, moments where we feel alone, isolated, um, and abandoned. And yet, in those moments, it is entirely possible to sense the presence of God in such a unique way that God begins to make a difference um, in us. What if in those moments where you are facing your own exile, your own Babylon, you could live confidently and consistently knowing that you could trust the presence of God, that God is going to do what is best for his kingdom through your life. And the reason I think you can do that, and it's the big idea, we'll say this throughout the series, is that faith is more about how you live than it is about where you live. Faith is more about what God is doing in and through you than what is necessarily going on, uh, than what is going on around you. We convictionally believe that we don't just go through things, but that we grow through things. That God will use hardship that comes into our lives to glorify himself in such a way that it'll make a difference not only in us, but again, around us. So what we're going to learn today, Daniel chapter 1, is that tests create trust. I'll say that to you again. Tests create trust trust. So if you got a copy of the scriptures, Daniel chapter 1, we'll start reading in verse 1. In the third year, in the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. There's a whole world of heartbreak, right, in these verses. 605 uh, BC, so we're 605 years before Jesus uh, ever comes into the world. The Hebrews are living in the promised land. Nebuchadnezzar from the kingdom of Babylonia comes. He besieges Jerusalem, but not just Jerusalem. He takes Jerusalem down, and in doing so, he takes the temple down. This is the temple that Solomon built, the place where the presence of God rested and reigned. And in doing that, it wasn't just that. But he took some of the vessels of the temple, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the vessels, some of the, um, the golden lampstand maybe, or um, the altar. He took those to Babylon and put those in pagan temples. It was unthinkable, right, to the Hebrew people. I try to think of a modern metaphor for us. Um, it would be like um, another country invading the United States, um, Canada, right? I know, Canada, but... <clears throat> I had to come up with something, right? If you're watching in Canada, we love poutine. You're great people. We love you, but probably not ready for the Canadian invasion. But if Canada invaded the United States, overthrew us, and they grabbed the Declaration of Independence, the Liberty Bell, and the Constitution, right, and took them back to Canada, like we would, it, would, it would be unbelievable, right, to us. But it wasn't just that he took things 
It was certainly more than that. Look at verse 3. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, the youths without blemish and of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, lear understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language, i.e. the culture of the Chaldeans, or that's another name for the Babylonians. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe uh, of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar takes 10,000 of the best and brightest of the young people in Israel as captives, hostages, and makes them exiles in Babylon. I'll show you just quickly um, what it would look like maybe um, on a map if that's, uh, if that's helpful to you, right? So from Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar, he sacks Jerusalem, right? And he takes them along this journey all the way back over here to Babylonia. Now, here, right, you see these rivers and this, the Fertile Valley. They wouldn't cross the Arabian Desert. This is a 900-mile journey, if you could imagine that. You, they have um, psalms, right? There are psalms, like, down by the river of Babylon where we sat and we wept for, uh, we wept for Zion. Um, it's amazing. There's just this whole world of hurt that occurs um, that occurs in these verses. So Daniel, I mean, his life would have been very predictable in the promised land. It would have been very, very, very simple for him. He would have thought about his future. Already you heard in those verses, he's obviously from a well-to-do family. And not just from, from a well-to-do family. He's skilled in wisdom and knowledge and language and understanding. What we learn about him later in the book He's a really sharp-looking guy. Daniel has all of his life is in front of him. This time, he's probably 14 years old. He's probably an eighth grader. If you think about that, ninth grader, maybe. Whole life out in front of him. His, it, very predictable. He would have gone, uh, he would have graduated from what we would call high school. He would have gone on to uh, a secondary school. And it, it would have been great. Like he would, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, The Ohio State University. Like he would have gone to a great school. And then he would have gotten married. He would have gotten a house overlooking Muirfield, right? It would have been great there for him. Had children, very successful career, very wealthy probably. And he would have been a leader in his local synagogue. All of that would have been true for Daniel. And yet, what's going to happen to Daniel as a prisoner of war, he will live the rest of his life 900 miles away from his home. He'll give the best years of his life in service to a foreign king. He will live and die in Babylon. He'll never go home. That's the change that is out in front of him. And I want you just to see just a little bit of what Nebuchadnezzar, how they tried to indoctrinate um, these, uh, these young people. Look at verse um, look at verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So Daniel and his friends are given new names when they get there. And basically, Nebuchadnezzar thinks it's going to take three years. It's going to take three years to turn these Hebrews into 
Babylonians. All of his life, Daniel, Daniel's got a great name in Hebrew. His name means the Lord is my judge. As a kid, whenever someone, hey, Daniel, the first thing that would pop into his mind, his name means God is judging. God is setting things right. The problem is that right now, God is not seemingly setting things right. So the test to trust for Daniel is how you and I react when we don't get our way. Is how we react when we don't get what we want. You really don't know a lot about somebody when they get what they do want, right? The test is when somebody gets what they don't want. So you get the test results back. And the test results include the language stage four. You get the diagnosis back from the doctor for your, for your child or for somebody you're leading at school or for um, somebody you're coaching and it contains the word chronic. You, you think you're in a relationship with somebody, right? You're headed towards marriage in your mind and all of a sudden the relationship just goes cold and it kind of dissipates. Or maybe you think, you know, you've got an okay, better than average marriage and all of a sudden you show up at home one day and the house is empty. Maybe for you, it's an unanswered prayer that you've prayed for years and years and years. That's what Daniel is facing in Babylon. This idea that the way that he thought about life and everything that he thought would happen, all this stuff out in front of him, gets almost necessarily kicked out from underneath him. Almost. Because now Daniel can no longer rely on his family name. He can no longer rely on his family's resources. He can no longer rely on his good looks. He can no longer rely on his street savvy smarts. He can no longer rely on his uh, intellect and learning. And when all of those things get kicked out from underneath him, Daniel's going to learn the most important lessons um, about himself. Look at the, uh, the next verse. We'll pick it back up in verse 5. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand uh, before the king. In some ways, the last thing Daniel could control was his kosher Hebrew diet. He could control what he ate and what he didn't eat. Part of the Hebrew covenant with God is that there were certain uh, dietary restrictions that God gave them that would reflect in a certain specific way upon his relationship with his people. It was part of what made them Jewish. It was part of what made them Hebrew. And now those things even are being taken away. His name has changed. His, the, for Daniel, it, it comes down to his identity. They're trying to rob him of his identity. For us, whenever we talk about the core values of our church, they're displayed in the lobby up there on the wall. The first core value that we talk about, when we talk about the five core values of our church, the first one is gospel identity. And when we say gospel identity, we mean that Jesus is the one who moves us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That when Jesus left heaven, came to earth, sacrificed himself on a cross to pay for our sins, that's what gives us meaning and value. That that becomes the thing that's foundational in our lives that animates us. That what does not animate us primarily 
is our family. What does not primarily animate us is our level of success. What does not primarily animate us is our reliance upon our good looks, our street smarts, our intellect. That what primarily animates us is that what we believe to be the truest things are the things that God says about us. That's kind of the worst news, that we're sinners separated from God, but it's kind of the best news because Jesus came and died for our sins. And this allows us to humble ourselves and to come into God's presence and begin a relationship with him. And what Daniel's going to learn in this process is that it is far better to live with God in Babylon than it is to live without God in the promised land. I'm going to say that to you again. It is far, far better to live with in the presence connected to God in Babylon than it is to live without God in the promised land. And when you get to verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1, everything in the story, everything in the story starts to change and it starts, um, and it starts to shift. It says this, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him, him, Daniel, not uh, not to defile himself. I put this verse in particular up here on the screen because um, there's a word here um, that's really important. In a sense, the whole story shifts in chapter 1, really in the whole book in some ways, around this word right here. Resolved. Up until this point in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, this exact same word, when the writer writes it, he is, Nebuchadnezzar has resolved everything. He resolved that he would go to Jerusalem and besiege the city. He resolved that he would change Daniel's name. He resolved that he would give them the, the king's portion of, of food that he would eat. The king is done. The king is done. The king is done. He's resolved. He's resolved. He's resolved. We would read that in the English. We would say that as he determined. Nebuchadnezzar has determined everything. But in verse 8, the whole story shifts because here it says, but Daniel, exact same word, but Daniel resolved that he would not eat the portion of the king's food that was determined for him. So Daniel proposes a test. Remember, tests create trust. Daniel proposes a test. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 12. It says this, test your servants uh, for 12 days. Let us see, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what it is, um, to what it is that you see. Daniel goes to kind of the dean of the school, this guy Ashpenaz, who's over them and this, this indoctrination program that they're going through. And he says to Ashpenaz, look, man, we're grateful for the king's portion of food. Like, don't hear us being ungrateful. We're grateful. Um, you know, we're eating roast beef and cheese and eggs. You know, the Babylonians were Atkins diet people, maybe. And Daniel's like, but we're more paleo people. Like, we just want vegetables, right, and water because of our commitment to our God. So here's what I'm asking for. Would you allow us to do this for 10 days? Like, we got three years, right? We got plenty of time. Like, let's try this for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, you test us. And you see if me and my three friends if we test out better because of our commitment to our covenant God than the rest of everybody else, 
And we'll see, we will see how God shows up. And the thing that I love about Daniel, and again, a lesson that we learn from him, is that your resolve is, it is tied to your identity. Your resolve is found, the idea that you would determine, right? The determining priority of your life is found in your identity. That the things that God says about you are more important, not only than what anybody else says about you, but what even you say about you. Your resolve is determined in that foundational identity. So let me ask you a question. Who are you? How you answer that question will determine everything else about your life. Your circumstances will not determine you. The things that happen, the people that come in and leave you, that will not. How you answer this one question, who are you? Not how much money do you make, not what your family name is, not where are you going in life, what school are you attending. What is the determining priority of your life? That if everything else is taken away, what is the determining priority of your life? How you answer that question will determine the direction, will determine the impact, it'll determine the flow, it'll determine the joy, it'll determine the level of peace. If you believe, if you are convictionally convinced that the most true things in the world that, uh, that are true about you are the things that God says about you, it completely changes your vision. That's what happened to Daniel in Babylon. So, it's really important for you and I, as we interact with the culture that we live in, it's important for you and I to determine our posture. And I'm going to give you at least three different ways you can respond to Babylon. I'm sure there are more than these, but I'm going to give you at least three ways that are common that we tend to respond to Babylon. Way number one is that you retreat and you blend in. You say, you know what? I'm at odds with the culture. The culture's at odds with me. I've got a lot to lose. Therefore, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm not going to say anything, right? I'm not. I'm just going to keep my little boat, my little ship right here in the harbor where it's safe. And, and I'll pray back here behind the scenes. Not that there's, obviously prayer is part of our lives. I'm not diminishing that at all. But I'm just going to retreat. I'm just going to blend in. The second thing is to attack and act out, right? You know, well, for, forget about leaving the ship. I'm going to attack the ship. I'm going to burn the ship, sink the ships, right? And so when it comes to interacting with the culture, like you can, you can take that posture as well. But I'm going to give you a third option. You can live like an exile. You can live in your city for the sake of God's city. What Daniel learns in this process, and we'll see it throughout the rest, throughout the rest of the book, is that living for God's sake in exile far outweighs, far outweighs what he could have been, who he could have been, what he could have become back in the promised land. That living with the one, living in relationship with the one who made the promise is way more important than getting the promises, than getting the benefits. Living in the promise is not nearly as important, not nearly as important as the relationship with the one who made the promises. So now when you get to this point in chapter one, you realize three years pass. 
And so now it's testing time. Now all of these young, so Daniel's probably gone from, let's say, age 14 to age 17. And he's going to stand in front of the, the, the most powerful king in that part of the world. And he's going to be tested. And here's how it goes in verse 14. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he, he the king, found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. Daniel and his three friends come out, and the king starts to test them, and the king realizes they're, not, they're, they're better, but they're not just better. They're ten times better. And listen, <clears throat> I, you know, Christians... Sometimes we get a little weird about stuff. And, you know, there's this whole idea that what made the difference in Daniel chapter 1 was their diet. So somebody did, wrote a book about the Daniel diet and this whole thing, right? And you just, you know, we get weird sometimes. Listen, it's not the diet, right? It's the commitment, the relationship that they had with, with their kind. Listen, the diet's great. Like, do the diet. Like, it's fine. But there's more than that. Listen. For Daniel, think about this. There were definite plans for his life. There was the promised land plan for Daniel's life. What's the promised land plan? You grow up in a hardworking, middle-class family. You get really good grades because you work really hard. You go to a really good school. And because you go to a really good school, that makes you a more attractive prospect to a young lady who's going to marry you. And you're going to have kids. And, you're gonna, and the kids are going to be successful. And you're going to be uh, better off than everybody else. And because of that, you're going to have a legacy in the center. Like there was a whole plan for him. The promised land plan. But then, all of a sudden, now there's a, there's a second, there's a Babylonian plan. And the Babylonian plan it's a little more exotic, it's a little more risky and risque, probably. You're going to be able to do some things over here in Babylon that you never could have done over here in the promised land as, as a young man. And I'm going to tell you, the, the, the danger of the promised land plan is that you can do all of those things. You can be successful, smart, funny, attractive. You can do all of those things without God. People do it all the time. But the danger of the Babylonian plan is that you have to, not that you can do, but that you have to do those things without God because a lot of those things are outside the boundaries of obedience and his best for your life. In between these two plans, and listen, is there, there's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with doing the right things. You can live um, in this world, but you don't live for the sake of this world, Right? That's not the thing that animates you, that motivates you. That's not the core foundational principle of your identity. What Daniel chooses is a completely different path. He chooses to live life as an exile. A citizen of this world, but with a far more important citizenship. He chooses to trade his Hebrew citizenship as his core identity for his heavenly citizenship, believing that eternity is far more important than what's here. And right here, when he resolves, verse 8, when he says, this is going to be the determining priority of my life, come what may, what may, 
You've got 1,300 years of Babylonian history, give or take, some few years. And the Babylonians, in, you know, from their world, they were geniuses. They gave us one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which is depicted in the artwork. Our creative arts team did a great job with the artwork in this series. Um, they gave us all kinds of technological advances that advanced their world. And for, I mean, it was, it was great in terms of um, sustaining and moving world culture, maybe, if you would say that, forward. 1,300 years they were in power. But I'm going to give you my opinion. This is not, this is the first book of Dean. Right? It's not biblical, but I'm going to give you my opinion. The worst decision any Babylonian leader, any Babylonian king or queen or prince or uh, general ever made in 1,300 years of Babylonian history was bringing those four boys into their culture. Because without the aid of any human power dynamics, these four young men are going to turn Babylonian culture upside down. These four young men are going to be the beginning. They're the genesis of a subversive movement that will change Babylon. They're the beginning of the end of Babylon. All because... They chose to live, they chose to live as exiles. And you're like, Lean, that's great. That's a great story, right? There in Daniel 1. But how does that help me? What, what difference does that make in my life today? What if you could live like an exile? What if you could start a subversive movement without the aid of human power dynamics that could change the course and the trajectory of your extended family? What if you could live life like an exile where you cared less about the things of this world and more about the things of the world that is to come to such a degree that it would shift things where you work? It would shift things in your neighborhood, that it would shift and change things in your marriage to the degree that it becomes light in, in darkness. What if you, what if you, could be a Daniel. See, I believe, I believe you can, and I know the numbers are so big, right? Like, I don't know the exact uh, demography of Israel at the time, but let's say there's a million people in the country, and there's 100,000 people in Jerusalem, and there's 10,000 we know of, of these young people who get taken to Babylon. Out of that group of 10,000, there are four. What of you? could be one of those four, one of those people who shifts things in the places and spaces where you live and work and play. And I don't know about your tendency, but my tendency when I hear something like that, when I hear a story like Daniel's story, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. How do you do it? Your willpower. Right? I'm going through something difficult. I'm just going to put my head down and I'm going to plow through it. Right? Embrace the grind. Right? Just one foot in front of another. And you and I both know if you've lived enough life that there's an end to your willpower. There's an end to you being inspired enough to 
man, make that happen. I would say, where willpower fails, love succeeds. Where willpower fails, and it will, love succeeds. The transforming love of God displayed in the person of Christ on the cross is the thing that changes us. I was blessed a couple of weeks ago to do um, a wedding uh, for a couple of folks here at LifePoint. Second marriage uh, for both of them. A little bit, uh, they're a little bit older uh, than I am. The husband, um, he lost his wife five to seven years ago after a terrible battle that she had uh, with cancer. The wife, again, five to seven or so years ago, um, her husband um, left their family, abandoned them, um, and she found herself in the middle of that kind of a crisis. Um, she and she and her children. And the day, on the day of the wedding two weeks ago, what was amazing to me was the love and the faithfulness that filled that little room that we were in. So much so that the daughters of one of the couple, or one of the daughters of uh, the, the couple, made a, what I thought was a very wise statement after the wedding was over. She said, you know, um, five to seven years ago, our family was praying, and we were praying that my mom would be healed of the cancer that she had at the time. And she said, about the same time, five to seven years ago, their family was praying, and they were praying that dad would come home, that the family would be restored, that everything would be put back together. And neither of us, neither of us, got the answer to our prayers. That when the, the fallenness of the human condition, God allows human beings to make choices and decisions and all those kinds of things. So neither one of us got the answer that we prayed for, but look at what God has done today. He has done something faithful and beautiful that is living proof that human beings can become more than we can do on our own that we can live like exiles as we offer our lives up, make ourselves available to God and say, God, you do whatever you need to do in me to then do unique things through me and around me. So Dean, how do I, how do, I do that? You and I can do that because we have a savior, Jesus, who was, our, who was the ultimate exile. He left the glories of heaven. He left the place where everything is as it should be. Everything functions the way that it's supposed to, supposed to function. He left heaven and came to earth. He came, left, if you can say it this way, his country. He left his ultimate eternal citizenship and came, left the, the being a member of the Godhead, worshiped right in heaven, came down to earth, the God-man took on the form of a man, Philippians chapter 2 says, and he became a citizen of earth, not just to be a model, not just to show us how to live, but to die for us. He didn't just save us from our sins. He saved us to himself. He said all these crazy things when he was here. He looked out at a crowd one day to a group. He said, hey, listen, don't worry if the world hates you. They hated me before they hated you. He looked out at the crowd one day and he said, hey, you know what? Foxes 
fox. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, and yet the Son of Man, referring to himself, he said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the people are all stepping back going, wow, what the... Why not? Because he didn't care. Because it wasn't priority. It wasn't important to him. It wasn't the determining foundational priority of his life. Is it okay to own a house? Absolutely. Is it okay to have good relationships with people um, and not have people hate you? Absolutely. But when it comes down to it, if you have to choose, who are you? Are you somebody born in a middle-class family who's tried to make wise decisions throughout your life, marry the best husband or the best wife that you could, have the best kids you could, do the best you can, work really, really hard so that at the end of the day you can say, man, I did my best and I'm a Christian. Or do you say, no, 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 no. He is Abba Father. And I am his child first. Grateful for all. Everything, what we sing are grateful all my life, blessings day and night. You are Jehovah Nisi, right? You are Jehovah Shema. You are Jehovah Rapha. And what you say determines everything else about my life. God help us as we move through this series to live like exiles because faith is more about how you live than it is about where you live. Let's pray. God, we open up our hands to you and we say to you that we are available. We say to you that you um, can have it all. We sing, we shout the hymn uh, of heaven that we sang earlier that, God, we believe that because of the resurrection, because of what you did in your son, that's what gives us this new life. It's what gives us freedom and peace and joy. God, make us into the people, the kinds of people that you want us to become. Would you be pleased by our worship this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.